And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside Horror Show. We are back in New York. For part dose. Get your dose of the dose. The dose of NYC and the state New York. Yes. Now we're in New York. Oh, God. It's been stuck in my head. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Now it's in mine. Thanks. You're welcome. I'm glad we can share. (laughs) (laughs) So, this week, I have a pretty delightful true crime story for you. Oh, right. I am psyched to hear it. Uh, I think you'll like it. It's kind of a weird one. Um, It takes place, you know, post-World War II. So it's a little bit out of the normal. World War Dose. World War Dose. There you go. (laughs) On theme. So the stop today is in Valley Stream, Long Island, New York. Uh, Valley Stream is actually a little subsection of Hempstead, New York, which is where Hofstra University is. I know Hempstead. It's also the first stop in a trail of bodies that were left behind by the great love affair between Raymond Fernandez and Martha Beck. All right. Starting off with a bang. Bang! Uh, The media actually dubbed these two crazy, crazy murderers the Lonely Hearts Killers or the Honeymoon Killers. Oh, did it ring a bell? Yeah. Ringing bells. I've either seen it on, like, forensic files or I know something. Oh. I'll tell you a little tidbit once I get to the end that I discovered after I did all my research and did one final, like, Google search. Okay. And I was like, I'm going to look for images. And I got all these weird movie stills and I'm like, what is this? But more on that later. Okay. So, to start off, let me tell you a little little bit about our murderers. We'll start with Raymond Fernandez. He was born December 17th in 1914 um, to Spanish parents who happened to be living in Hawaii. So he was born a son, solely American citizen. Okay. During his childhood, he also lived in Connecticut, but eventually his family returned to Spain. And that's where he, you know, grew to adulthood. He served as a merchant marine in Spain, and then eventually he ended up working for British intelligence as a spy during World War II. After the war, Ray decided to leave Spain to find better employment opportunities. However, on his journey back to the Americas, he had an unfortunate accident that changed the course of his life for forever. During this ship voyage from Spain to the West Indies, he was hit in the head with a steel hatch on the ship. It severely damaged his head, it fractured his skull, and it also damaged his brain. He was checked into a hospital once the ship docked in the West Indies, and he took over three months to recover from his injury. Now, the... Holy shit, okay. Yeah, pretty intense, right? Yeah. So the brain damage that Ray received from this steel hatch, clocking him squarely on the top of the head, uh, it damaged his frontal Frontal lobe. Yep. Yep, and you know where it's going. He went full Phineas Gage. I was assuming, like, as soon as you said head injury, I was like, well, maybe this will account for the murders. (laughs) A little bit. Um... I just mentioned it's very similar to Phineas Gage, who had the steer, seal bar through yes. his head, and it very much changed his personality. Well, the same thing, unfortunately, happened to Ray. Oh, did you ever see that SVU episode? No. Where this woman had brain cancer. Uh, it was a tumor that was pressing against her frontal lobe, and it caused her to, like, rape these little boys. I was like, what, what? the actual fuck? Whoa, SVU. Yeah, it Damn. was nuts. And that's why I stopped watching that show around, like, once Stabler left. Because I was oh, like... Oh, I know. If I can't get my Christopher Minnelli fix, I'm done. Yeah, Christopher Maloney. Maloney. Yeah, I love him. And if um, Mariska. Mariska Hargitay ever left, I'd be like, nope, can't do this no, no, anymore. just Mariska. <laughs> and plus, I mean, Christopher Maloney. 
Dad ass. Dad ass. <laughs> Have you watched Happy, by the way? What is that? It's like this new show he's on where he's like... A very brain damaged slash drug addled former police detective. And he sees... So it's SBU the sequel? No. The later years? It's even better. <gasps> because he has visions of a magical pegacorn. The fuck is a pegacorn? It's a okay. pegasus unicorn? Yes, pegacorn. Voiced by Patton Oswald. No. Who is his daughter's imaginary friend and his daughter gets kidnapped and the pegacorn goes to find Christopher Maloney's character to save his daughter. You are making this shit up. I am not. It is fantastic. <laughs> it is It is everything you want it to be. It's called Happy. It's called Happy. Mm-hmm. I'm looking this up as soon as we get done. All right. I think I like it. It's what I'll fall asleep to tonight. <laughs> anyway, back to Ray. So he did definitely have the Phineas Gage experience. Uh, by all accounts, before, like he was a pretty smooth, very dapper guy, very polite, very, very friendly. I mean, he worked as a spy, for God's sake. But after the accident, he became super erratic and short-tempered and very impulsive. Um, when he was released from the hospital in the West Indies, he continued his journey to America. He boarded a ship bound for Alabama. As the ship pulled into port, he decided it would be a great idea to steal a bunch of the clothes that were being transported in the ship's hold just prior to landing. And as he has all these fancy new duds, he walks through customs and the custom officials go, hey, those look like the clothes that were stolen from the ship that you just got off of and immediately arrest him. <laughs> Oops. Oops. So he gets sentenced to a year in prison for theft in Alabama. So while he's in prison, Ray's cellmate is this Haitian man who was a self-proclaimed voodoo hugan. Hugan? Let me see the word. Hugan? Um, something like that, like hugan, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a, it's like the male uh, voodoo priest, basically. Priest, yeah. Um, so Ray was completely enamored by this this new religion. He converts to it, and he's convinced that voodoo has given him this power to be simply irresistible, Robert Palmer style. To <laughs> that just got stuck in my head the second you said it. <laughs> simply irresistible. So he gets released in 1946, and he moves in with relatives in New York City. Now, Ray's kind of like overworking for a living, and he's looking for an easy way to make money, and he also wants to utilize his amazing new voodoo power over women. As you do. As one does. And he begins answering Lonely Heart personal ads. Oh, shit. I definitely know this. Oh. <laughs> I'm so excited. So Ray is looking for women who can be easily seduced and conned into giving him access to their money and valuables. And he starts pursuing these women. And basically he ingratiates himself, kind of seduces them. And then once he's stolen as much as he can, he disappears. That sounds like my one ex in high school. <laughs> Stole 300 some bucks from me just to buy more drugs. Like, Ugh, that's oof, rough. After cheating on me like crazy. So, yeah, he yeah. was a winner. Winners. Yep. So, Ray doesn't do drugs, but he does steal a ton of money. Um, Great. By 1947, he's carried out... Are you sure his name isn't Devin? Yes. Okay. I mean, he may have used that name because he used different names with all the ladies <laughs> he talked to. So, by 47, he has been corresponding with multiple women, um... He's done this con a couple of times so far and have been pretty successful. He has been caught. Uh, one of the women that he's currently talking to is this lady named Jane Thompson. And Jane is so taken with Ray and his romantic letters because he does he plays up that like Spanish Latin lover thing. Oh, of course. I am Antonio Banderas. I am Jorge Hernandez. <laughs> he convinces her to go on a romantic cruise to Spain with him. 
Ooh. I know. Of course, fully funded by Jane's money. I mean, okay, so no, I'd rather it be paid for me, but, um, you know, I would definitely go to Spain. With a guy named Ray? Okay, probably not. Because this guy just reminds me too much of my ex. What about a guy named Ramon? Ramon. Okay, maybe. Discover me, Ramon. (laughs) Discover me. (laughs) I'm America and you are Columbus. We have fun. We do have fun with movie references that no one probably gets, but oh well. We still have fun. We do. That's what's important. So Ray and Jane Thompson go on this trip to Spain. And for a few weeks, everything's amazing. They have they travel through Spain. They have this whirlwind romance. And the thing about Ray is that he does not care what a lady looks like. She can be old, young, does not matter as long as she has the money and thinks he's God's gift to women. That's all he cares about. So while they're in Spain, they kind of hang out a little bit too long and things kind of sour between the couple. Okay. While they're staying in a little town named La 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 Lina? I'm so bad with Spanish. Let me see that one too. Uh, La Lina? La La Lina? No, but there's no no thing above the end. So La Lina? It still makes that sound no matter what I say. But yeah, just because of the EA. So I don't know. So they're staying in La, 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 La Lina, Spain, and Ray is heard fighting with Jane in their hotel room. And then shortly after that, he's seen fleeing the room. The next morning, the hotel staff comes to, you know, clean the room, make the beds, all that good stuff. And they find Jane's lifeless body. Now, her cause of death is uncertain. There's no clear marks in the body. They just assume, oh, I guess she died of natural causes and she's quickly buried in Spain. Meanwhile, Ray has hightailed it back to New York with a forged copy of Jane's will. And he goes to her Manhattan apartment, proceeds to take it over, and then kick out her elderly mother who was living with her at the time. Great guy. Okay. Yeah, super awesome guy. He still has a couple other ladies that he's been working over correspondence while he was traveling. Of course he does. Because, I mean, he, lot, you got to get lots of irons in that fire. So he comes back and he looks for his next target. And he settles on a woman named Martha Beck. Now, Martha Beck, who was born Martha Seabrook on May 6, 1920, lives in Florida. Okay, enough said there. Period. (laughs) Florida woman, Martha Beck. Knee Seabrook. So while Martha was growing up in Florida, she grew up with a single mother. She was cold and very domineering. Plus, Martha had a glandular problem, which resulted in weight gain and early puberty. So by the time she was 10, she was obese and a fully developed woman. So... She is teased really heavily at school, and on top of that, has a horrific home life, and she ends up being sexually abused by her older brother. Shit. Yeah. So Martha eventually runs away after graduating and ends up at a nursing school in Pensacola. She does graduate in 1942, but she can't find work as a nurse due to her appearance because she's obese and not the most attractive lady. Uh. Okay, so it's kind of like, wait, which hospital is it? That's just like, you need to be the pinnacle of health to be here. Exactly. That's kind of what she faces. So she drifts from job to job in and around uh, Pensacola and Milton, Florida. And she would frequent the bars in town looking for love. Eventually, she ends up hooking up with one too many servicemen. Because, again, World War II, guys are shipping in and out of town. That's true. She ends up pregnant. She gives birth to a daughter and then proceeds to explain her single motherhood by saying that she's a World War II widow and that her husband had died in the Pacific Theater and her she had her daughter and she's taking care of her as a widow. All right. 
So she's trying to make the best of a bad sitch, I guess. I guess. In late 1944, Martha thinks she has found love again. Oh, no. She meets a bus driver named Alfred Beck, and they hook up, and then, surprise, she gets pregnant again. Um, Alfred kind of feels compelled to marry her, so he does, and then they divorce a short six months later. So Martha now has two... Compelled sp- to marry her? Well, yeah, because he knocked like, her up. by voodoo? No, by, no. by, you know, knocking her up. By getting one up the duff. Up the duff. Oh, I can oh. go on by dipping his wick. I just hate the phrase up the duff. <laughs> I'm sorry, English people, if you are listening, but up the duff to Americans does not sound like pregnant. It sounds like... You're restuffing your pillows? Something very, very naughty. <laughs> Continue. <laughs> So now we have Martha, who is, again, like a divorced mother of two. She has two small children, and she's still intensely lonely. So she does what anybody would do and starts placing personal ads. Soon she's contacted by a successful and charming Spanish businessman from New York. Enter Ray Fernandez. Mm-hmm. The two court over the, over the mail for a couple of months, and then finally Ray agrees to visit Martha in Florida. So at this point, Martha's already head, in, head over heels in love, and it's extremely excited. When Ray arrives, he doesn't react to her physical appearance at all, and the, soon, the two quickly become physical. After a few days of shacking up with Martha, Ray realizes that she has absolutely no money, and this is a huge waste of his time. <laughs> and he's like, it's been real, but I think you may have misunderstood some of my feelings towards you. I'm uh, going to get on the train back to New York. Bye. Of course. And he leaves her. Martha is absolutely heartbroken, and she goes so far as to try to kill herself. Oh, no. Eventually, Ray hears about this, and he feels kind of bad. He can feel guilt? Yeah, yeah. He's not totally, totally forgotten. He's a con man, but apparently he has a little bit of a heart left. So he offers to let Martha come stay with him for a little bit in New York while she recovers from her suicide attempt. So with her two kids in tow, Martha hops on the train and leaves Florida to move in with Ray. Well, as they live together as a couple, Ray realizes just how devoted and caring Martha really is. I mean, she's trained as a nurse. She's She wants to be a caregiver. Yeah. She proceeds to clean for him and cook all his meals, and she just takes care of him. He slowly starts to fall for Martha. He's very smitten by her just devotion and love for him. And eventually he decides that he needs to be completely 100% sure, so he needs a sure sign of his, her devotion. So he asks Martha to get rid of her kids. I'm sorry, I just... Right. Wow, okay. So, in January 1948, Martha takes the kids, goes down to the local Salvation Army, and leaves them there. Comes back to the apartment to raise waiting arms, sans kids. I kind of liked Martha before this. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't like her at all. Nope, she's so desperate for love that she's going to just dump her her kids. kids. Yep. Ooh, that's like a Facebook post that I saw that someone shared about, like, you know... I'm with this guy, and he's really good to me, and blah, 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 and all that stuff, but I have two kids from, like, a prior relationship, and he doesn't want them, so I need to give them up to live with their father, who they have no relationship with, to stay with him. Should Mm. I do it? That's a big nope. Girl, if you even have to freaking ask, those are your damn kids. Mm -mm. (sighs) Ugh. Okay. (laughs) Well, Ray is like, this is literally my perfect woman. And he is completely like, yep, Martha, you're the one. I love you. We're going to be together forever. You have no soul. I have no soul. Perfect. Perfect. And of course, what does Ray do next? He's like, hey, so remember how I wrote you those letters? Well, 
actually, I'm writing lots of women letters, and this is my con game. And he brings her into the Lonely Hearts con he's been running, where it's basically he pulls all these letters he's writing to women, and he's like, I, you know, I meet them, I seduce them, I steal their shit. See, immediately from the start of the story, I knew that, like, when you said about Ray doing all this, and you noticed uh, noted that she was part of this, I was like, he's going to be someone that... I mean, she's going to be someone that he hooked up with, and then she's just like, I don't care, I'll do it too, it's fine. Exactly, you're dead on. Like, you would think Martha would be horrified because she was also a victim, but she's she's like, no, I can totally make this even better. It's pretty much just like, I'm offended, I'm appalled that you would even do that without giving me a cut, come on. (laughs) Pretty much. So Martha says, hey, you know what makes this even better is if we run this con game and I can be like your... You're, I can pretend I'm your sister or your sister-in-law and we can like put these women at ease and just get in, get in and get out even quicker. Oh, God. She has one condition for him, though. He cannot fall in love with any of them. And she's also very concerned about sharing him physically. Okay. So she puts limitations on what he can and cannot do because he's her man, goddammit. Absolutely. So with Martha on board, Ray selects their first victim as a couple. Oh, such a big moment for them. And it's this woman named Miss Esther Heen. Um, with Martha pretending to be his widowed sister-in-law, Ray quickly woos and marries Esther. But when Esther refuses to sign over her pension and her life insurance policies, the couple are like, whatever, and they steal everything in her house that's worth anything and her oh car and flee. <laughs> they quickly move on to their next victim, which is a woman in Illinois, and they use the exact same con with Ray marrying the woman and Martha posing as her sister-in-law. They also rip off this woman for as much cash as they can carry and move on to their next mark. But this is when things start to go south. So the third woman that they con is this lady by the name of Myrtle Young, and she's from Arkansas. Or Myrtle Arcan- Snow. Myrtle, Myrtle Young, unfortunately. I wanted it to be Myrtle Snow. she's from Snow. Arkansas, or Arkansas. Arkansas. <laughs> <laughs> so Ray convinces Myrtle to come up to Illinois where they can get married. And she does. She rides the bus up from Little Rock. They get married. Martha starts to get super jealous and did everything she could to prevent the newlyweds from consummating this marriage. Like, apparently Myrtle was a little bit younger than her. Yeah. And she would do creepy weird things where she would insist that, like, Myrtle should sleep in the bed with her and not Ray. And it was just very gross and creepy. Yeah. So after a week or two, Myrtle gets fret- fed up with Martha's behavior and she confronts Ray about it. Ray's like, you know what, calm down, calm down, calm down. Just let me take 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 some of these sleeping pills and relax and we'll work it all out. Whatever. He proceeds to drug her to the point where she is unconscious. And with Martha's help, they load Myrtle onto a bus back to Arkansas without her money or her valuables. And they end up selling about four grand from her, oh all said God. and done. Great. Unfortunately, when the bus arrives in Arkansas, Myrtle has at this point OD'd and she slipped into a coma and oh, she dies shit. at a hospital the next day in Little Rock. That was not what they planned. Not what they planned at all, but hey, whatevs, they got away scot-free. Yeah. So Ray and Martha decide to send head back east, and as their money starts to roll out, they start looking for their next victim, and they find her. It's this woman named Janet Fay, who lives in Albany. She's a little bit older. She's a woman in her like late, mid to late 60s. She has a decent amount of money, but she's also like a devoutly religious Catholic. So when Ray contacts her... 
with his sister Martha in tow, Janet's automatically put at ease because she's not alone with a gentleman caller. Yeah. After a two-week courtship, Ray and Janet marry. They clear out Janet's savings account at the bank, and then they make arrangements to move to a new apartment in Stream Valley, Long Island. Okay. However, Martha has, at this point, again, grown jealous over Ray's attention to Janet. So once they arrive in Long Island, she just quietly gets furious because she doesn't have Ray all to herself. Then one night, she catches Ray and Janet in bed together. She absolutely freaks out, flies into a rage, and attacks Janet with a ball-peen hammer. Huh. That's always been a word that I wonder why the hell they call it that. Ball-peen. A ball-peen hammer. It has to do with the back of the hammer. Well, I know. Yeah, but still, it's just ball and peen. Ball-peen hammer. Weird. What's with the peen part? Like. What's with the peen part? What's with the peen part? That's a question for Google. <laughs> Not a question <laughs> no, for Nicole. I know what's going to pop up if I put that into Google. <laughs> oh, like okay. semen allergy? Semen <laughs> allergy. <laughs> semen from the ball peen. <laughs> so Martha basically cracks Jane over the head with this ball peen hammer. And it doesn't kill her, though. So Jane's like She's laying there. like skull. Yeah. Well, who knows? She was in a rage, you know? Yeah. Didn't have the best aim. So as Janet's laying there like bleeding and basically crying for help, Ray does what anybody would do, and he quietly strangles her to death. Of course, that makes sense. As one does. Then they place Janet's body in the closet. And the next day, they're like, we need to get rid of Janet's body. So they put her in a trunk. And then they move it to Ray's sister's house for a couple days, while Ray secures a rental property somewhere else in, in, I think it was Brooklyn, I believe. Then he eventually takes Janet's body after a few days and then buries it in the basement of this rental house which he then covers the whole floor of the basement in cement. Meanwhile, Martha is writing letters to Janet's family, telling them that she's super excited to be marrying and that she's going to head to Florida with Ray. After her family receives no additional correspondence, no follow-up letter from Janet a few weeks later, they contact the police and report her missing. Well, too bad, because Martha and Ray are already gone. They're on the road in search of their next victim. And they find her in a rural suburb of Grand Rapids, Michigan. The couple meet Delphine Downing, who is a young widow with a two-year-old daughter. And they immediately move into her house. Great. This is going to end well. Mm -hmm. So Ray's seduction of Delphine is going smoothly, despite Martha's, again, slow-simmering jealousy. Then one morning, something tipped off Delphine to Ray's deception. I found conflicting accounts of what caused it. Like one one reference said that she walked in on hit him on the bathroom and saw him without his toupee and saw the weird scar from his <laughs> steel hatch incident. Another one said that um, she was getting fed up with Martha's behavior because Martha started getting aggressive towards her and her daughter. Which it's, I mean seems like the Martha thing to do. It, totally, totally on brand for Martha. So I don't really know what happened, but basically Delphine got really upset with Ray. And he does his old standby, which is, here, have some sleeping pills and calm down so we can talk this out. <laughs> so we can talk this out. Which Take is some like, sleeping I'm pills sorry, like, out. I've had arguments with people and I have never been like, sure, I'm pissed at you. Absolutely. Give me the blue ones. That's never right. happened. No, never. <laughs> never. So she does it for some reason. He, I guess he's a pretty good comment and convinces her to do it. Although, God, I just <sighs> thought if someone did that to me. I'd take the sleeping pills and be like, joke's on you because I'm still going to be up for hours, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Insomnia to the rescue. Yep. 
Um, Delphine was not insomniac. And she takes these sleeping pills and kind of is like in and out of consciousness. Luckily this time Ray doesn't OD her. However, she still has her two-year-old daughter who becomes completely inconsolable because her mother is like weird and drugged up and not responding to her. At this point, Martha has just had it and she flies into a rage, kills Supreme, and mm. strangles a little girl until she's unconscious. Nice. Yeah, super awesome. Damn it, Martha. Martha Dump Truck. Martha Dump Truck. No, Martha Dump Truck was a gentle, I beautiful soul. I actually like Martha Dump Truck. She redeems the name Martha for me. Anyway, so Ray is afraid that when Delphine comes through, she's going to be, again, angry when she sees the bruises around her daughter's neck. Well, so yeah, he, I would be. <laughs> he panics and does, again, what any rational human being would do. Murder her. And he shoots her in the head. Okay, yeah. As one does. Normal. Well, over the next two days, the couple hide out the house. and They kind of argue back and forth on what to do with the toddler. She won't eat. She's upset. She's kind of hard to handle. And they're also not sure what to do with Delphine's body. So they talk about maybe they could drop the girl off at an orphanage. But that could kind of be messy because people could identify them. So Martha decides that the best course of action is to drown the little girl in a basin of water. Okay. Yeah. yeah I see, Solving I see the logic. Solving yeah. problems the worst way possible. Well, now they have two bodies. And again, Ray who is very much a creature of habit, decides, you know what, let's bury them in the basement and I'll cover the floor with cement again. Because, you know, it worked last time. It worked last time, it's going to work this time. So he buries them. They proceed to loot the house of valuables and they start to pack up to leave, but it's a little bit later into the evening. They're like, you know what, we'll just leave tomorrow. And then for some inexplicable reason that I could not find anything about in my research. (laughs) I love when that happens. They decide to go to town and catch a movie. Okay. I mean, all that killing makes me, you know, just want to relax, too. Put my feet up. Just want the popcorn. Yeah. Maybe check out a flick. Put our feet on some sticky floors. Mm Mm-hmm. So, they arrive home later that night. They start packing the rest of their bags so they can leave early in the morning. And there's a knock at the door. It turns out that one of Delphine's neighbors had grown suspicious since he hadn't seen the young mother or her daughter for a few days. Then he saw the strange couple of Ray and Martha leaving the house earlier that evening, and he got concerned, so he called the police. Okay. The police check out the house. They see the fresh cement in the basement, the missing downings, and they quickly arrest Ray and Martha. And Ray, of course, being the gem of a human being he is, immediately confesses to their murders. But then, just as quickly, he retracts his confession because he's saying he was just trying to protect Martha. Okay. Still, it doesn't really matter. Harry thought he was just going to throw Martha under the bus. No, no, he loves her. He's going to stand up for Martha. Okay. Or also, he's just a brain-damaged monster. Not too. It didn't really matter, though, in the end, because the authorities had plenty of witnesses and evidence. They had the letters. Oh, yeah. Um, That's right. They had raised letters, and they had some of the responses that he still kept for some reason. Gotta burn that shit. Um, and they had enough witnesses to bring the couple to trial for at least three of the murders. And the murders were, of course, Janet Faye, Myrtle Young, and the Downings. So after some debating between the prosecu- prosecution teams in Michigan and New York, they decided that they're going to try the couple first for the death of Janet Faye in New York. Because unlike Michigan, New York actually has a death penalty for murder. Yeah. And it ended up that the murder of Janet Faye was the only crime that they were tried for. 
At one point, there was speculation, and the police tried to pin upwards of, like, 17 different murders. Oh, shit. Like, different, like, single lady murders on them. Um, but it only, only they only needed that one. So the trial, of course, becomes a circus. Yeah. Because it's just a crazy tale. Meanwhile, Martha and Ray are still vehement that, you know, they didn't do it, that they're being prosecuted for their love. And the media proceeds to depict them. Sorry, that's really good. Yeah, they're like, no, they don't want love to survive. The world will never understand our love. Mm Hmm. Meanwhile, the media depicts them as these grotesque killers who went on a multi-state murder spree of sad, lonely women. Which is, you know, probably more accurate. So both Ray and Martha, surprise, are convicted of murder and they're sentenced to death because New York's a killing state. And on March 8th, 1951... Virginia is for lovers and New York is for killing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, March 8th, 1951, both of them are executed in the electric chair at Sing Sing Prison. First Ray and then Martha. So according to the records, they proclaimed their love for each other for the last. Oh my God. Ray's last words were apparently, quote, I want to shout it out. I love Martha. What did the public know about love? Oh no. Meanwhile, Martha told those gathered to witness her execution, quote, My story is a love story, but only those tortured by love can even know what I mean. I'm not unfeeling, stupid, or moronic. I am a woman who had a great love and always will have it. Imprisonment in the death house has only strengthened my feelings for Raymond. I disagree, Martha. I I strongly disagree. I heartily disagree, Martha. Um, and then the weird side note. Okay. The thing I discovered whilst I was Googling my last Google. Apparently, there is a 2006 movie that is, quote unquote, based on a true story and is based on the true story of... Lonely Hearts. Of the Lonely Hearts Killers. And, oh, who is that? That is Mr. John Travolta. Yeah, that is John Travolta. Even better. Ooh, wow, a 48% on Rotten Tomatoes. The rest of the cast. John Travolta as one of the policemen who chased them down. James James Gandolfini Gandolfini. as one of the policemen who chased them down. Jared Leto, Selma Hayek. Right, as Ray and Martha. Like, what? Scott Kahn. Lauren, oh my God, everybody. I watched the trailer for this, and I highly encourage any listeners who want a good chuckle to watch it. Because it looks like Jarrett Leto and Selma Hayek act their goddamn heart out. But all the reviews say that the movie spent too much time on, like, the boring police stuff. <laughs> Travolta. <laughs> and that they really wanted to see more of these people who kind of murdered their way across the country. And I guess the movie kind of depicts it more as, like, they're con artists all about Bonnie and Clyde. And they just accidentally happen to oh, murder no. people and they go off the That's rails. That's, like, what they did with, like, the, the Bonnie and Clyde movie that they came out with, like, not too long ago. I don't know. I only know the Faye Dunaway Oh, well, they, they recently made one, I think. I think it was a movie. Oh. But it was just, like, from the police side of things rather than... Oh, from, yeah. I'm no. just, like, boring. Yeah. Nope. Like, I love the reviews. It's like, when Hayek and Letter were on the screen, don't look away. <laughs> don't look away. That's the only good part. No one wants Travolta. <laughs> then it's like, this version is easily forgettable. And I guess, like, that's the one I was like, version? Tell me more, Google. And I guess there have been a couple different um, movie renditions. There's another movie out there called The Honey Honeymoon Killers. Okay. And it's the same story of uh, Ray Fernandez and Martha, Martha Beck, you know, and their their terrible Lonely Hearts murder spree. Yeah. So I'm like, that's so crazy. Because I had, I had never heard of this until I was, like, Googling, like, weird crimes in New York and whatever. And this popped up and I was like, huh. 
telling me more. I kind of like want to make my own and have it be like a love story for the ages. Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> exactly. But with murder. But with murder. Yeah, I'm pretty sure after watching the trailer that like Jared Leto does not have brain damage in that movie and Selma Hayek. He just has it in real life. <laughs> and Selma Hayek looks fucking hot as hell. She always does. That's just Selma Hayek. I know. Wait, but wait, I'm like, she's supposed to be Martha? Yes! She's supposed to be Martha, dude. And I'm like, I, I mean, uh, that changes things. That's No, it yeah. doesn't. No, it doesn't. That's yeah. okay. So I'm like, Hayek had a weird early 2000s. Yeah. She made some kind of delightful, but like forgettable movies. That's true. She did. Anyway, that's my story. All right. Then I guess we should take a break I'll and a break. I will get to my story. I really did enjoy that, though. That was really good. Good. Glad you liked it. Absolutely. Snacks. Snacks. And we're back. We are. I'm excited for your story since you kind of like maybe hinted at it, dropped it last episode. Just a slight hint. I didn't say the actual name of the story or anything. Oh, wait. Yes, I did. <laughs> so, okay. Ready? I am ready. Okay. Picture it. Sicily, 1912. Sorry, that's that's Golden Girls flashback. <laughs> Let's start over. When I was a little girl growing up in St. Olaf. Okay. I no, did it no, again. no, no, no. Not quite right. Okay. One more time. Picture it. Long Island in the 1970s. You had everything. Beautiful beaches, Village Green Miniature Golf, Westbury Music Fair, and a nice little, okay, not so little, house located at 112 Ocean Avenue. I know that address. Where a murder spawned a haunting, and a haunting spawned a legacy, including a movie that was kind of okay, a remake that sucked, and a ton of awful sequels, and a highly controversial book by Jay Anson. This is the story of the Amityville Horror House. Yes. Okay, so it all began the early morning of November 13th, 1974, when a 23-year-old man named Ronald DeFeo Jr., or Butch, as he is sometimes called, took a 35 caliber rifle and shot and killed his family in their home. Mm. After he walked into a bar, no, really, that's not the start of a joke, he just shouted, You've got to help me. I think my mother and father are shot. No shit, because he did it. But, all okay. right. So, DeFeo took a small group from the bar back with him to the house and called the police. When the police arrived on the scene, they found not just his parents dead, but four other family members dead in the house. All had died of gunshot wounds. They were all his siblings, right? Yep. So the victims were, if you'd let me get there, Nicole. Sorry, I'm so excited. <laughs> Ronald DeFeo Sr., who was 44. His mother, Louise, 42, and his siblings. Don was 18, Allison was 13, and the boys, Mark and John Matthew, were 12 and 9, respectively. They had all been shot around 3 a.m. in their beds. The children were only shot once, whereas the parents were both shot twice. Okay. The weird thing about this is that none of the neighbors recalled hearing anything other than uh, a family dog barking. Weird. So, DeFeo decides to tell the police a few different things about what went down. He first tells them that a hitman for the mob named Louis Fellini had killed his family while making DeFeo watch. The police checked on this, and Fellini actually was a real person. Wow. At least. Um, he had an alibi for the time of the murder, though, so when they asked him again what happened after that, he said that he had been at work while the murders had taken place. Why wouldn't he start with that one? I don't know, but that turned out to not be true either, so. (laughs) 
He makes up a few other stories before finally admitting to what he did. When asked why he killed his family, DeFeo simply said, Once I started, I couldn't stop. They're not Pringles. They are family exactly. members. Exactly, yeah. He ended up telling the police where he'd hidden the, uh, his like bloodstained clothes and the rest of the evidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, on a funny note, DeFeo actually asked the police, So guys, like, how do I go about getting the life insurance money now that my dad's dead? Wow. Yeah. Yeah, he was just like, I don't give a fuck. I want my money. So detached from reality. Yeah. So he was brought to trial on October 14th of 1975, pleading not guilty by reason of insanity. It had come out that his home life hadn't really been the greatest. His dad was kind of mean. Although his family had money, uh, and just by looking at the house, you can tell that. uh, His father was said to be very angry and abusive, and that caused DeFeo to become a troubled adolescent and young adult. He had turned to drugs and alcohol to escape his problems, as you do, and had even threatened his father with a gun before this incident. So, going back to the insanity plea, his defense attorney said that DeFeo had been hearing voices that were telling him to kill his parents. DeFeo also said before that he was possessed at the time of the murders. Hmm. So he's just going all over the map on this one. That defense was... Shot down by prosecution as DeFeo was a big-time user of heroin and LSD and suffered from antisocial, eh, antisocial personality disorder. I want to stop here for a moment because I've found over the years with my work and study of mental health uh, that people often don't understand what antisocial personality disorder actually is. People tend to think it's, oh, I'm antisocial, I don't talk to people or have friends. Mm-hmm. It's a lot more than that, and when people think of it, what people think of as antisocial personality disorder is actually called schizoid personality disorder. And again, that's completely different from schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder. People with schizoid uh, just don't really have an interest in social interaction or making friends. And that's normally what people think of when they think antisocial. Mm-hmm. But antisocial personality disorder is the proper term for what people normally call a sociopath. And I know I'm guilty of using the term sociopath as well. Um, That's a tough one, though, because I also hear that interchange a lot with psychopath. Psychopath is an actual thing, where sociopath is just antisocial. They seem to have no regard for other people's feelings and are usually superficially charming and highly manipulative and will go to any extreme to get what they want regardless of what it does to anyone else. They have a complete lack of empathy and don't even really understand the emotions of others. So they can't really put themselves into another person's shoes. So let's just say, you know, we're talking and I say to you, oh, I had a really bad day. You know, I, you know, trying to think of something. I got a parking ticket. I got a parking ticket. You'd be like, oh man, that's so bad. I feel, you know, bad for you. I know what you're going through. You know, Mm -hmm. something like that. These people just be like, so? Oh. They just don't give a fuck. They'd be like, anyway, those nachos. Yeah, pretty much. They just don't care. So, you've had your free preview to my Psychology 101 course that's coming soon to a college near you. (laughs) So, back to old Butch. They were able to show that he knew what he was doing at the time and just really didn't give a shit. So, he was found guilty of the murders and sentenced to six concurrent sentences of 25 years for each murder. There's been a lot of speculation about all this, though. And since a silencer wasn't used, the family wasn't drugged, no one heard anything other than the dog barking, and the murders were done so quickly, some people believe that another person was involved, 
but nothing's been proven. Like, they found a silencer mm-hmm. in the house, but it did not fit on the, the rifle, rifle that he used. Yeah, I don't think I've ever... I mean, plus silencers aren't... One, I've never heard of a silencer for a, for rifle. a rifle. I guess, like, sniper rifles yeah, have I'm them. Yeah, I assume they probably But do. also, like, despite what the movies say, like, silencers aren't really that silencing. They just kind of the, muffle the, the, sound, the sound. But they don't... You can use a pillow and do... The, yeah. So maybe that happened. I don't know. But, um... Like, yeah, there's been a lot of speculation. Uh, DeFeo has given some really weird accounts of what happened, saying in an interview that his sister Dawn killed their dad and that his mom killed everyone else in a rage before he finally killed her then in self-defense. But weren't they all found, like, in their bed? Yes. Hmm. DeFeo also said, and this one's even crazier, that he was married to a woman named Geraldine and that he was living with her in New Jersey at the time of the murder. He said that one night he received a call from his mother asking him to come over to break up a fight between his sister, Dawn, and their father. He says he drove to Amityville with his brother-in-law, Richard Romando, and that he could corroborate this story. So he files a 440 motion in 1990, which is a motion to vacate judgment. And just runs with this bizarre tale where Don and another person who had fled the scene before the cops could get there and before anyone could get a good look at him killed the whole family. And then Don herself died by accident when he fought her for the gun, causing it to go off. In her bed. Apparently. I couldn't find it to see what it said, but Romando sent in a signed affidavit to the court and he could not be found anywhere, you know, when they tried to subpoena him. Well, that makes total sense definitely credible so after all this there's evidence given to the court that richard Romando does not in fact even exist cool and that geraldine was not married to defeo nor did she live in new jersey at the time but was living in upstate new york and married to someone else entirely wait so geraldine was real geraldine was real but she was not married to him at least not at that time gotcha I think they got married actually after he was in jail or something weird. Oh, but that makes sense since it's like he's bringing this up like in the 1990s. Yeah. And it's like, oh, honey, it's vouch for me. bizarre. But DeFeo... Can be together. Yeah. DeFeo had even previously signed affidavits saying that he was in fact living at home and working for his dad around the time of the murders and dating a woman named Mindy Weiss. So everything was pretty much just bullshit. Um, more recently... There's been these conspiracy theories saying that this boyfriend of Dawn's had come forward and said that Dawn had anger issues and murdered the family and also that Geraldine was involved in the murder and tried to cover everything up. Hmm. Yeah, really weird. All this definitely sounds like the crazy spinny yarn that like a like a sociopath would Absolutely. tell just to like get out of something. Yeah. So Side note. Have you ever read the book? Your next door neighbor is a sociopath. No. Oh, it's very interesting. I'll have to check that out. And it's all about how, like, you probably have met a sociopath. You just don't realize it because most people who are sociopathic aren't violent. No. They're just basically assholes. They're manipulative assholes. Exactly. In 2000, a book was published about the murders by a man named Rick Osuna saying that he got information from DeFeo, which DeFeo denies talking to him about any of this. He says that he, like, stormed out right away. Mm -hmm. Uh, So according to this book... The Night the DeFeos Died is what it's called. DeFeo told him, supposedly, that both he and Don killed their parents together because the parents were plotting Ronald's death. He quoted DeFeo as stating that it was Don who killed their siblings and horrified at what Don had done, DeFeo killed Don. 
It's all batshit, and there's a lot more that Asuna claims about the events that night, as well as the unproved marriage to Geraldine. But for the sake of time, I'm going to just wrap up this section pretty much and get to some even crazier shit. So basically, despite everything you've heard, Ronald DeFeo murdered his family. Yeah, that's pretty much what it comes down to. Gotcha. I do want to add that there is a documentary made about Asuna's book called Shattered Hopes, The True Story of the Amityville Murders, and it's narrated by Ed Asner, of all people. Hmm. If you don't know who that is, he's from the Mary Tyler Moore Show. He's Lou, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so now that I've talked at length about the murders, let's talk a bit about the Lutzes, the people that moved into the house. George and Kathy Lutz who were just married on July 4th of 1975 and moved into the house on Ocean Avenue in December of the same year uh, with their children, Daniel, who was nine, Christopher, who was seven, and Melissa, who was five. The children were all from Kathy's first marriage with her high school sweetheart, whom she had divorced about two years before marrying George. But George had insisted on adopting the kids legally, so for legal purposes, they were his children at that point. It's a pretty stand-up guy. He was also recently divorced, and he was an ex-Marine. According to everyone, the new couple was very happy together. Now, if you haven't seen what the house looks like, it's a really beautiful Dutch colonial with a pool and what seems to me to look like a lot of land. It was on the water and has a boathouse even, so it's just a very nice house all around. The Lutz family knew about the murders when they bought the house and didn't really seem to be bothered by it at all. And they got the house and all of its furnishings for only $80,000. Wow. Yeah, that's less than I paid for my unfurnished home. I mean, it was 1975, so no one that I know of was murdered in my house either. So, you know, stigmatized property, sells for less. Rate of inflation. Yeah. This times this over this equals this. Anyhow, when George's friend was told about the murders in the house, he was kind of just like, dude, what the fuck? Get this shit blessed by a priest right fucking now. <laughs> Do it. So, George is a non-practicing Methodist, um, supposedly. Uh, and he wasn't really involved in the church at all. Um, we'll dive into that a bit later. But he knew a priest who offered to bless the house. In the book by Jay Anson, he's called Father Mancuso. But he could have either been named Father Ray or Father Ralph J. Pecorero. There we go. Sorry, I had to read that. Pecorero. Um, According to Anson in his book, so who knows how accurate this is, uh, as soon as the priest began flicking holy water around for the blessing, have you ever had a priest come to your house and bless it? Uh, We're like Christmas and Easter Catholics. Okay. Because there was just like priests that would just walk up to your door and be like, hi, would you like your house blessed in my area? Really? Door door priestings? Yes. I mean... (laughs) I've had Jehovah's Witnesses come to my door. Oh, uh, yeah. I show up naked at the door for them so they'll leave faster. Oh, no. I just tell them I'm Jewish. No, that works, too. And they get really nervous and they walk away. You could always do the saved thing and be like, about that. I've decided to devote my life to Satan instead. But thanks, though. That might work, too. Or they might want to save you even harder. That sounds like a way longer conversation than I have time for. That really does. Anyway. <laughs> so what the priest does normally is he does, like, the whole pretty much exorcism thing. It's like the... Really? Yeah, um, he pretty much, like, spritzes holy water in, like, four corners of your house and does, like, the whole, I exercise you all unclean spirits, blah, blah, Or in Latin, exorciamus te omnis immundus spiritus omnis satanica protestas omnis incursio infernalis. I don't remember the rest of it, but... 
Wow, that's impressive. Yeah. My Latin is pretty much limited to legal terms. Oh, my Latin is shit too. But, you know, I, I, I learned the little bit that I needed to for medical reasons, you know, even though we ended up not using the medical abbreviations anyway. But <laughs> whatever. So this priest blesses the house. And as soon as he starts throwing this holy water around, hears a voice telling him to get out. And after he left, he began experiencing symptoms similar to stigmata. What? Yeah, which is creepy as fuck. And now I'm seeing Patricia Arquette in my head, of course. Oh, yeah, that was a movie. I, I like that, that was movie. That was a movie. I like that movie. I mean, I like pretty much anything Patricia Arquette agrees to do, so exactly. whatever. But also, stigmata. Yeah, I don't know. And like I said, this is information from the Jay Anson book. Okay, fair enough. So it's based on a true story, and we all know what that means. So who knows how real that account was. We do know that they did have the house blessed by a priest. That's all we know for sure of that incident. The hauntings, however, seemed to start right around um, the time when the Lutzes moved in. They were bringing boxes up from the play- to the playroom, and the family reported seeing about 400 to 500 flies in the room. Gross. Yeah. They would constantly kill these flies, but they would just keep coming back again and again. And this is in the middle of winter. You don't need an exorcist. You need an exterminator. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, maybe Whoopi. <laughs> to say, you in danger, girl. Um, they reported a lot of smaller instances as well, such as objects moving on their own, strange smells. Uh, but later, the hauntings became more intense. The children's beds would levitate and violently knock together. Oh. There was one night where George was sleeping, and... Uh, the children's beds, like Danny's and I forget what his brother's name is, but um, they were bang the bang together like heavily banging, like really hard. He heard it from his bedroom. He tried to get up out of bed apparently to come, you know, mm-hmm. help them, but he was like being held down by an unseen force uh-uh. and kept in bed. Nope, nope, Mm-mm. exactly. Mm-mm. So uh, family members also reported uh, being pushed by unseen forces. The garage door would violently open and close on its own, uh, slamming back and forth with incredible resistance uh, when they tried to stop it. Uh, family experienced major mood swings while living in the house, and George told reporters that he would continually wake up around 3.15 a.m. each night, which is around the time that DeFeo had supposedly killed his family. Ugh. I, I already am like... Like, I'm excited about this because it's Amityville, but I'm also already, like, creeped out by this. Yeah, it's very creepy. I mean, still, you don't know if it's real or not because it's it's highly speculated on. But Mm. it's just, it's a lot. Doors, they said, would, like, fly off the hinges and stuff, too. Nope. Yeah. George also said that he witnessed his wife, Kathy, suddenly start to levitate and move toward an open window. And when he tried to stop her, her face became that of a withered old crone. What? No! Yep. What the? Yep. <laughs> Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Also, really weird thing with the family dog. Wait, wait, just... Was it like she was sleeping and happened? Or was it like they were like... I think they were like awake completely oh, at this time. Mm-mm. Yep. Mm-mm, nope. Still, the big nope. Major nope. So many nopes right now. This is even more of a nope, especially since we're very much animal lovers. But the family dog kept trying to hang itself (gasps) in the backyard. Um, I don't know. I think this might have been the night that the garage door was acting crazy. I'll get to that in a minute. But this dog kept, like, it was on, like, a leash or a tether or something like that. And it kept jumping over the fence 
and it would like hang itself. It had enough like rope to hang itself, but not enough to get to the ground on the other side. Danny kept pulling the dog back over and the dog kept running and jumping and going back over the fence to strangle itself more. No, you, okay, one, you take your dog inside when that happens. Yep. Two, you shorten that lead. No, yeah, absolutely. Like, seriously, like, just be a responsible pet owner. Like, that's crazy. That's nuts. That's very upsetting. Uh-uh. I don't it's like, like that. It's like that bridge. Do you ever hear about that bridge? I don't know where it is. Which bridge? There's supposed to be a bridge somewhere where, like, people's, like, dogs and stuff will just, like, jump over the edge and kill <gasps> themselves. No. Yeah. I don't remember where it is, but I heard about it a long time ago. I don't like that. Yeah. So, That's in... why I can't have a dog. I'd yeah. be, like, devastated if anything like that I know, because, I mean, I like cats, but I like dogs a lot more. And I just, I really want a dog, and my dog would be my baby, and no one would get between me and my baby. Well, I just... Certainly so, not a stupid bridge. Like, I have cats, but, like, every time I'm near a dog, and my wife sees me interact with a dog, she's like, you're such a dog person. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, I like cats, too. They're my friends. I've only ever really had cats. Like, I had a dog when I was really young. I think it was about four, but then we had to give up the dog. And it made me really, really sad because I wanted Casey forever. I never had a dog either. I don't really understand how they work. Yeah. So, but I totally volunteer all the time to dog sit. Absolutely. And then my poor wife has to like take care of certain things. Like I'm like, what do I do with the poop? She's like, you scoop it up with your hand. I'm like, with my hand? With my hand. That's that's so gross. She's like, you literally clean a dirty litter box. Yeah. Right. Once a week for your cats. I'm like, it's well, different. I knew someone that used to use a shovel it's in their polite. backyard to clean up the dog shit. Light. Or you could do what Joe did and just run it over with the lawnmower. Yeah. Well then. I don't know. But, so. So, anyway. <laughs> after the dog incident. Yeah, so in the documentary that was made, it's called um, My Amityville Horror. Okay. Um, it's one that Danny did. Um, so I'll refer back to this a oh, lot. I think I've seen that. Yeah, it was pretty it's good. Like, yeah, he's like an adult. He goes back yeah, to the house. Plays the guitar like, a lot. Yeah. 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 Um. So I'll be referring back to that a lot, and I'm sorry if the, any background noise is loud because it's raining outside. But so, in this documentary, Danny says that he had nightmares for years about the incident with the dog. Uh, he said sometimes he'd be himself in the dream, other times he would be the dog, and sometimes he'd dream that he was killing the dog or the dog was killing him. I mean, that's terrible, but I kind of understand if you're a little kid and you see like your beloved pet companion try to kill itself exactly which is just so weird to me like just, that's yeah very I'll, traumatizing yeah definitely one of those things that floats around your subconscious for sure absolutely i don't know how you'd forget something like that danny also said while setting up christmas decorations that the house took on this really foul stench all over and that's usually a sign of like a demonic presence because like demons smell like sulfur or rotting flesh or garbage or sewage normally that sort of thing. Anyway, he went to open a window in the playroom. I remember how we feel about opening windows. Don't you open that nope. window? That works for hauntings as well as true crime. That's a no. That's like no, the one of like, if not the number one nope, at least in the top five nopes. Absolutely, it's it's definitely high on the nope list on the nope meter. Nope meter. <laughs> <laughs> so, he went to open this window in the playroom. It was stuck. He forced it open, but when his brother came into the room to ask him if he was okay, the window slammed down on his fingers, and he was unable to get it open again without extreme trouble. Finally, like, I think his dad came in and helped him open it, but they got the window open. His fingers on both hands were completely flattened and broken, 
Uh, he said that a, that a door then slowly opened and a ghost woman walked through him and sat down in the corner of the room and disappeared. This is all while, while his mom what? was like getting bandages and stuff. So his hand supposedly swelled to five times their size, kind of like the Grinch's heart. <laughs> and this was around Christmas. So, you know, uh, then they turned back to normal. What? What? Yep. His pinky finger uh, on one hand is a little weird to this day, but according to him, his fingers were all broken and magically just healed themselves. I don't know how I feel about that. I don't know how I feel about that either. But, you know, we'll say it's real for the sake of the podcast. Family also reported several apparitions in the house. Random temperature changes between freezing and sweltering. And they said their youngest son... Uh, was talking to one of the entities and that it was one of the more negative ones. Well, I mean, they're pretty much all negative, but you get what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. So several family members also reported being scratched by these entities. Danny said that he was possessed by a spirit uh, and heard it say in a low voice, it is you. Don't know what that means. What? Yeah. He said the sensation was like the feeling. Goosebumps. Yeah. Creepy. He said the sensation was the like feeling the feeling of numbness after an electrical shock. Okay. Um, I've definitely accidentally zapped myself before because I'm kind of an idiot. Oh yeah, I've sometimes. done it before too. Yeah, uh, I actually almost like the sensation a little bit. Well, well, I don't know. I'm a little weird. Tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he didn't really go into detail about the possession, other than to say that he felt like he wasn't in control of his own body, and saying that this lasted for about half an hour or so. George says that he found a greenish puddle in the garage and called it poltergeist puke. What? Yeah. Or antifreeze, like, hello. I don't know. But maybe Slimer from the Ghostbusters was there. (laughs) So, you know, I could, I guess, call it ectoplasm, even though ectoplasm outside of Ghostbusters is just like a thing um, in, like, spiritualism back in the day. Are you familiar with the spiritualist movement? Of course. Okay. Well, I contemplated doing the Fox Sisters like the Fox story sisters. for yeah, my that's, spooky just like, New York story. Like the Fox Sisters yeah. is what I wrote here. So, yeah. Ectoplasm uh, is supposed to be like a substance that is something like mucus inconsistency or maybe even like cheesecloth. I don't know. But um, it's something produced by the psychic uh, when, in the st- when in a state of trance for a spirit to manifest. So it's not like the delicious high seat ecto-cooler that I'm used to from childhood. It's absolutely not. And I don't know, um, because a lot of the spiritualist crap uh, during the turn of the century was just found to be pure bullshit, like the Fox sisters. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I do have a picture that I wanted to show you that's just hysterical. It's a picture of um, ectoplasm forming for a ghost to appear. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I just need to describe this picture that Eden just showed me. It's essentially a woman sitting in a chair. She's she's slightly overweight, and uh, she has her uh, hands down the arms of the chair, and she is blindfolded with a piece of black cloth, but then shoved kind of terribly underneath the black cloth <laughs> is what looks like a cheesecloth scarf that then leads up to what I can only assume is a paper mache face mummy. I don't even know what kind of seance this would be, but I'm sure glad they got a picture of it. That's, yeah. And I hope 
we can share it. I, I hope so too. We'll have to find out if it's like public domain. Website. If not, we can always do some sort of link or something. I'm sure. But it's it's bad. If that's what ectoplasm is, then I think that I don't want ectoplasm in my life. That I am done with puppets. Or maybe I want more of it. I am just done with puppets, sir. <laughs> that too. I'm very fed up with puppets. It's a puppet problem in this country. Puppet problem. <laughs> okay. They said they found cloven hoof prints in the snow there too like which honestly could just be some animal it's called like, a deer yeah exactly i see them all the time so they said whenever it would like freshly snow they'd find footprints but you know i have so many animals in, around my house that i see shit all the time oh yeah like the vitiligo deer yep the crazy white deer that's out there somewhere right now mm-hmm. uh yeah there's like a group of deer that hang out in the field across the street from my house and they walk through people's yards at night and down the street like almost like in a gang I call it their gang. I don't know. Don't let the They're called the hooves. <laughs> the hooves. So there's also this hooded figure that looks like his head was blown off by a gunshot who shows up by the fireplace. That one actually makes pretty much sense. But he has a for, hood on? But he has a hood on, yeah. So I don't know. Okay. How do you see the gunshot if he has a hood? I mean, is it the front of his face maybe? I don't know. I don't know. I can't. Okay. Whatever. We can speculate for days and we'll never know. But uh, there are stories of doors ripping off the hinges, like I mentioned, and cabinets slamming, which is just nope, a big nope. Uh, the Lutz family ends up fleeing their home after all this shit goes down. How long, Do you know how long they were in the house? I was just about to get to that, Nicole. Uh, sorry, I keep jetting on this gun. So they move out in the middle of the night, not grabbing anything. They're just like, let's just get the hell out of here. Um... They don't bother to pack up at all. They're only in the house for 28 days. <laughs> but, wait, when did they move in? They moved in in November. And, all right, all right. That of, makes sense because they were like, there's or, snow. No, or December or something. They left the house on January 14th. Okay, fair enough. So I'm like, what about the snow thing? I withdraw that. Yeah. No, it was definitely winter. You probably heard me say July 4th earlier, but that was the day that they, the George and Kathy were married. Oh, okay. Yes. I think that was what I was thinking of. So. Yeah. So they've, they're like, you know what? They do what pretty much I think anybody would do if like their house is like crazy. That haunted. Yeah. Yeah. You'd just be like, you know what? Fuck it. We're out. They even let the bank foreclose on their home. And that's like a big thing that people talk about. They talk about the fact that they're like, well, you know, they were getting behind on their bills. But they were only there for 28 days. And that's what I said. I'm like, they're only there for 28 days. How did they get behind? Like, when I moved into this house, I moved in in August. I didn't have to start paying my mortgage. I didn't get a bill for my mortgage until October or November. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's usually like the first six months is like that bleed period when you move into some place. Because that's when you like finally get your bills and you kind of figure out your budget again. Yeah. But, like, 28 days is, like, it's not even That's... enough time to, like, no. finish forwarding your mail. It's just enough days for zombies, according to those movies. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I forgot about those movies. Thanks for that. You're welcome. Now, they go to the media after they move out uh, with this story. And this is this thing is just, like, an instant phenomenon. I mean, like, on a global scale, which gave them both the good and bad side of, you know, instant fame. Uh, my friend Johnny, who grew up in Scotland, told me that he remembered reading about this in the newspaper in Scotland and said that it was the first time he really remembered being interested in the news. I think that's kind of crazy that it like reached over that far. Yeah. Uh, at this point, there are a ton of paranormal experts and reporters just coming in droves uh, to this house, and they conduct uh, like investigations into the haunting. 
The ones that I know of for sure were like the Channel 5 News, who are in the documentary, and also Ed and Lorraine Warren, who you probably know if you, and even if you think you don't know them, you probably still know them. Ed and Lorraine Warren were involved in a ton of very well-documented hauntings, such as the Enfield Poltergeist in England, uh, the Perone family, uh, the Sneedecker house, oh, and a guy who claimed to be, you know, killed, he claimed to be a werewolf, and that's why he killed people. No, not a werewolf. He was possessed by the spirit of a werewolf. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. Anyway. Don't they have a museum, like, they in do. Connecticut, I think? Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Oh. Well, they're dead now, but, um. Well, right. So the museum probably still lives on, but they have, like, this whole creepy room of, like, all these things. Well, it's like the Annabelle doll, right? Well, it's I was like just about warm... to say that. If the above names that I mentioned mean absolutely nothing for you, it might help if I say these titles. The Conjuring. Loved it. The Conjuring 2. Meh. Annabelle. Oh. A Haunting in Connecticut. Yep, like that one. Yeah. Haunting in Connecticut was the Sneedecker house. Um, Annabelle was Annabelle. Uh, Conjuring 2 was the Enfield poltergeist. And The Conjuring was the Perron Par- uh, family, Perron family. I don't know how you pronounce it. Um, so that's all that stuff. I'm sure there's more, but those are the ones that I can list off the top of my head, pretty much. In the documentary, there is a scene where all the Channel 5 news people that worked for the news at the time are sitting around a table discussing what they found when they were there for six hours one night with the Warrens. While Lorraine Warren said that this was the most oppressive, demon-infested house that she'd been in, and while in trance, she said she felt like she was in hell itself. Oh, God. The news crew really didn't see or experience a single thing. The only two things that really happened to them that night is when the one cameraman walked up the stairs. He started feeling like he was like having a having like a heart attack or heart palpitations or you know or something for no reason. He had no history of heart problems and had worked with the news team a lot on serious stories before without any issues. Hmm. The other is another photo I'm going to show you. Uh, it's very creepy, and I do mean freaking creepy as hell. Uh, I guess the family was completely gone at this point uh, because they make a point to say that there were no children in the house when this photo was taken. But in this photo, you can very clearly see a young boy with these glowing eyes. Oh, the demon boy photo. It's honestly one of the most disturbing pictures that I've ever seen. Yes, I am familiar with that photo. That's the thing that you always... You do know it. It always pops up on, like, pictures of ghost websites. Yeah. It's like, we've captured ghosts on film before. That's always one of them. It's, it's, it's really super creepy. creepy. Yeah. It is super creepy. And I remember I showed Joe one time and he was just like no no <laughs> like he always does no, no. No, no. the warrens are a huge freaking name uh but a lot of things they've said have been debunked unfortunately ed has been quoted as telling an author even one time working on one of their books uh that he didn't care if the story was true and just to make it scary apparently they're very nice people but they're kind of a little there. sketchy yeah so there are quite a few things about the Lutzes themselves that have also been called in question over the years, such as George Lutz saying that he was a non-practicing Methodist, but Danny and others saying that he was into the occult and possibly Satanism. Uh, so people Wait. think that he might have stirred stuff up. George was? George Lutz, but the father. But he was a Marine. So? I'm just, that's surprising, that's all. Yeah, um, it's kind of weird, too, because, like, I feel that this is completely possible that he could have stirred stuff up. Uh, just from, like, looking at him, I get these vibes, because he's just, like, something about his eyes creep like a... me out. 
just like when I look at pictures of Richard Ramirez, the oh, Night yeah. Stalker, just pictures of him too would just like, oh, no, nope, big nope, major nope, whole lot of nope. So basically Danny's like, he was kind of into some bad shit. Pretty much. So, I mean, I definitely get those vibes from George Lutz. He just looks ridiculously creepy, and I kind of see him, like, hanging out with Anton LaVey. I mean, he wouldn't have looked as good as Jane Mansfield doing it, but, <laughs> you know. Denny also said that George had, like, these books on the occult, such as Satanic History, Hypnosis, and Mind Control. Denny states in the documentary that when he tried to look at the books and show them to his mom, that she, quote, cracked him over the head and said, put this back on the shelf. That leads me to believe that there's two possible things to this. Either she was afraid of those books, or even afraid of her husband, or that she could have possibly been involved in this stuff, too. Who Hmm. knows? And that was another one of the rumors that they were both into this. A lot of people at this time said that maybe they made it all up, too, for the fame, and because they were behind financially, like I said before, that doesn't make sense, though, for them to be behind financially. I can see people being like, oh, they're just saying this for the fame for sure. Yeah. It's like it was like an overnight yeah. sensation, basically, right? Absolutely. Yeah, it was nuts. Uh, the one lady from the news said that Ed Warren said some of the people in the house had been like going room to room and anti- antagonizing ghosts. Does this remind you of anyone? Zach freaking Baggins from Ghost Adventures. Oh. I ended up looking him up after this on a whim and I found this Reddit. <laughs> Yeah, and it asked if Zach Baggins was a liar, and it was the greatest thread that I've ever read in my life, and I kind of want to share some of it with you, because, um, like, there's this guy whose username is Professor Wayne, and on any negative comment about Zach, which is, like, every comment, he just tears into these people, so I think it's probably either a super Zach fan, a troll, or Zach himself. (laughs) So, here's one of the posts. This person writes... I think he is mentally unwell. Then Professor Wayne writes, I think you are projecting your own mental health issues onto a man you've never met. That's sad. Let's see this one. Two cents from me. Liar. Definitely got the narcissist vibe from him, which made me stop watching. I don't see an empathetic nature in him. Because they're talking about how he says that he's an empath. Oh. And then Professor Wayne writes, Swing and a miss. But a lot of times when someone is attractive, other people say mean things about them to make themselves feel better. Maybe that's what you're doing here. Maybe you don't think you're as pretty as he is. Maybe you need to talk to someone about that. Um, but the thing is... And then is, someone says, here, my thought. The thing is, I mean, Zach Baggins kind of looks like a character from Dragon Ball Z. I could see it. Yeah, yeah, I could like, see it. I mean... Anyway. Someone someone wrote on here then, whenever someone creates an account for the sole purpose of responding the way the professor did, this guy is either Zach's biggest fanboy or Zach himself. <laughs> That's what I think. Uh, the next one is, I don't think he's an empath. I think he sees his career flailing. Maybe they meant failing. Maybe they meant flailing. I don't know. And it's a desperate bid for more attention. Go away, Zach. Funny, my husband and I were just discussing the same thing last night. So Zach Baggins ha- has gone to Amityville and like yeah he has I-, I I'm not familiar like so I don't particularly enjoy I don't like, like the ghost those shows adventure either, really. stories yeah. I mean I do love the Dead Files yeah but I love that for very specific reasons and the specific reason is frankly when I travel it's for some reason the only show that's on whilst I'm like getting ready for bed and I, I find it very soothing to watch that show 
yeah. some reason. I don't know. And, like, sometimes it backfires because I get really creeped out. And then, oh, of like, course. I can't fall asleep. And then every but, time like, you close your eyes, you're just imagining something looming away. over you. I can't look away. I can't look away. I think, I think the, the woman on there just reminds me of people I know, and it's, like, weirdly compelling. Yeah. I just want to read one last thing that Zach, I mean Professor Wayne, wrote in response to that. <laughs> he said, yes, with the top three paranormal shows on television ever, book deals, a music career, a museum, a documentary career, and millions of dollars at his disposal, he truly is most likely panicking about his job options at this time. He seems to have quite the in-depth knowledge of Zach's portfolio. Exactly. So this has to be Zach or someone who's very invested in him. I mean, here's the thing. If it's not Zach, I want to know who his people are. Exactly. Because they sound like they have a solid social media team. I think so, too. We need that. Mm-hmm. So, sorry, Zach. Help us. We're really sorry. You are beautiful and amazing and all those other things that we really don't think you... I mean, we think you we are. We respect what you do. We, yeah, okay. That works. I'll and say we don't that. do the same thing, but we respect what you do. Yeah. So, Period. you do you, Zach. You, you do, do you. you. Okay. So, sorry about all that, but I had to because it's too funny. One of the people from the news also spoke about a psychic who he had worked with before by the name of Ron... Burgundy. No. Oh, damn. Mangravit? Mangravit? Mangravite? Mangravite. I would go with Mangravite. Okay, whatever. His name is Ron something. Uh, Who said that um, there had been like a shit ton of ritual magic performed in the house, that he was getting that vibe. So that goes along with uh, the thing about all the Satanism and other crap. Random question. Mm Mm-hmm. So before the DeFeos lived there, do we know anything about who lived in that before house? Before the DeFeos? No. Yeah. Really? You would think that something that is so um, widely known, that there would be some kind of like record or some somebody would have investigated that, I guess. Yeah, but I did not find anything. I mean, it wasn't specifically looking for that, so it might be out there. I'm curious. But... I mean, I'm not going to file a Freedom of Information Act because I'm not that curious. Yeah, exactly. But just saying. It's okay. Professor Wayne will do it for you. God willing. Now, just to finish up, I want to talk a little more about this documentary. Uh, To go along with the whole Satanism slash ritual magic thing. Which one is this one? It's not the one that Danny did, is it? Yeah. Oh, it is? Okay, cool. I'm pretty sure I saw that. Yeah. It's, it's, you should definitely watch it. Um, Danny says that he had witnessed George, before they moved into the house, move objects such as like wrenches and stuff Mm -hmm. with his mind in the garage. What? Yep. Weird thing about this is after this, uh-huh. and I must have been like in the zone that night, I don't know, but I was just like, okay, I don't know, maybe it's possible. I want to try it. So I decided to try it. Did you move things with your mind? Hold on. You didn't text me about it? Well, I wanted to wait for the podcast. Uh, but all right. I just started like staring. I was like, I'm going to move this. What was it? Peanut jar. Yeah. A jar of like planters, peanuts that was sitting there. I was like, okay, because I was like, let's move the drink that I have here. Let's not move the drink that I have here, because if I actually do move it, it's going to spill, and that's not going to be good. So I have this jar of peanuts sitting salted there. Salted or unsalted? I'm assuming they were salted. I think they're salted. I know. These, they already had been assaulted, and then uh, <laughs> then I decided to move them. Um, You're a terrible person. But I was concentrating really hard. I started feeling this weird feeling like right back here in my head. Mm-hmm. And I just kept concentrating and concentrating. And I don't know if you've ever done any sort of work with energy before or anything like that. Like you, Reiki? Like you get like a tingly sensation in your body. Like almost like electricity moving through you. Like when you zap yourself in an outlet? <laughs> like when you zap yourself. <laughs> it's a little different, but sort of. I don't know. 
Um, no, I have done. I have done a lot of uh, visualization meditation where mm-hmm. you like focus on like you visualize like my favorite is like a the color pyramid, color step pyramid. Oh yeah, you, mm-hmm. you step onto it and you visualize the colors kind of flowing up your body, and that does like it's weird because it's like you're you're concentrating on feeling those parts of your body, so you do. Mm-hmm feel the energy flow up but it's it's very much a meditative yeah. practice and like yeah I, I felt very tingly all over my body suddenly i felt so freaking tingly that like i could barely concentrate on anything but that i almost got like tunnel vision kind of mm-hmm. uh i couldn't focus on anything but that peanut jar and it did start to move i couldn't control the direction of which it was moving and then it freaked me out so much that i stopped how far did it move not very but it still moved it went up and down first and then side to side and then... ABAB left, right, start? Yeah, that one. <laughs> Konami code? Konami code. Um, yeah, it was, like, really bizarre. And I didn't I didn't think I'd be able to do it, but something happened. And, I don't know, I tried to do it the next night after that, and nothing happened. But Okay, one, this makes me uncomfortable at recording in your house. <laughs> Two, I'm kind of jealous because so many times have I had that moment where I'm like, come to me, and I tried to do the Jedi mind trick for something. Oh, see, it wouldn't be like using the Force... Because mm-hmm. it would be very, very impractical since I had to stare at that thing for a long time before it moved. But what if you get better at it? If you get better at it, then sure. I mean, but I mean, goals. I just want to be like, I'm tired. I'm going to open the fridge with my mind and grab out a nice cold drink. Like, you know, <laughs> I want to be able to do that. Don't think it's ever going to happen. But That's what robots are for. And I also think that a lot of stuff like telekinesis is a lot more sciencey than we give it credit for. It's probably using parts of our brain that we're just not used to using. I think a lot of it could be that as well. I mean, I I could see the argument for that because you could argue that, you know, there's all kinds of magnetic fields we're unaware of. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's all kinds of things we don't understand about the physical universe. We just don't have the math to explain it. A lot of things with the paranormal and with magic and things like that doesn't have to be at odds with science. They can absolutely coexist. Well, I think that's why I prefer the terms like paranormal or preternatural versus supernatural. Yeah. Or it's the idea, it's just something that we don't understand. Stand. Absolutely. I agree. So George was moving wrenches with his mind, though. Yep. Um, that was just a weird thing. Like, Danny was, like, very adamant that he saw him doing this. Also, a woman whose name bar thing on the documentary, I couldn't really see. I'm assuming she was, like, a psychologist, but I'm not sure. She thinks that uh, he may be, uh, because of, like, the movies and the books that came out, that he was producing some sort of false memories of what had happened oh. and took the film adapta- adaptation as truth. I mean, he was how old when they lived there? He's pretty young, right? Nine? Yeah, I, I can, think. I mean, it, it's true. Memory is definitely a fallible thing. It's and... very much a fallible thing. But then it just reminded me of the confabulation defense. <laughs> <laughs> <gasps> yeah, I, I, I appreciate that. I, I do feel like memory is not a trustworthy thing because the way our minds work, it's not it's not a recorder. It's Absolutely. And we definitely, we confuse. I know I've confused two separate memories as the same thing before, too. Mm-hmm. Where I was like, this happened on the same day. No, that happened five years apart. I think that's <laughs> like, why I like having conversations with my mom or my grandma or my aunts or uncles. Because, like, be like, remember that thing that happened that one time when I was a little kid? And, there, and there was, it was at Christmas time. They're like, no, no. That no, was Easter. That was, yeah. And we have photos to prove it, crazy person. And I'm like, no. I'm exactly. like, I am vehement in my mind. There was Christmas happening. Exactly. But... You can very clearly see it in your head. This is what happened. And maybe it's just not what happened. Exactly. Yeah, no. Either way, it's usually a happy memory. So I'm okay with that. Yeah, that's fine. So Danny 
also said that he had several exorcisms performed on him by priests when he got a little older, and that the priests uh, beat him frequently when he was sent to live at the church. I think it was that he was sent to live at the church. It was something like that. He was also saying that he was like homeless for a while and lived in the desert and I feel all like this other poor stuff. Man, so, like, I, I feel know. like this like, early stuff. experience really like really messed up messed, his life. Oh trajectory my god, yeah. Absolutely. Uh he also like was in a bunch of different schools because I guess they moved around a lot and every time it was like, you know, oh that's so and so, you know. Um Amityville Horror Kid. Yeah. Uh, he got sick of being that kid, and it was always different names because depending on what movie or what thing mm-hmm. you watched, it was they would name him different things in the movie. So that's kind of an interesting idea, right? So you have like the Lutzes who are like, "We're gonna talk about this terrible thing that happened in this house," and now we're like internationally famous. Yep. And at first, I'm sure it's very thrilling, but then you kind of are at this place where it's like, "Yeah, now you're famous for being the haunted family." Exactly, which also sucks. It sucks, and it's like this fame that like you can't get away from. Yeah. And I mean, I understand how that could definitely fuck you up, but Danny, this is the thing that I didn't like about the documentary. Danny seems like inappropriately angry when talking to like whoever's performing the interviews behind the camera. He was just like insanely confrontational Mm. and like really nasty when he seemed to have, um, you know, agreed to this documentary anyway, uh, or else it wouldn't have been released. So I don't understand the guy was just doing his job. Uh, but he even says to the guy who simply asks him if he would be willing to submit to, like, a polygraph test. Mm-hmm. He wasn't saying it like, I want you to submit to a polygraph test. Mm-hmm. He was just asking them, like, what would you say to someone, you know? Yeah, if someone asked you to take a polygraph, what yeah. would you say? And he kind of, like, blew up at He him. was just like, I'm going to have words with you after this. Don't pull this fucking shit on me, dude. Yeah, like, he was, like, going nuts. It does kind of sound like he has a story he wants to tell. Yeah, which I don't blame him. He wants his side heard, too. Uh, his siblings were both approached about doing the documentary as well, but they apparently just declined. They didn't want to do it, which is understandable, too. The house has been bought and sold several times since the Lutzes left the house, and no one has experienced anything at all other than the Lutzes. And I have a hmm. possible theory as to why these hauntings took place only for them and none of the other owners, if they did happen. Mm-hmm. When they bought the house, like I said, it came with the furniture. Okay. There were the possessions of the DeFeo family. Objects can be haunted and probably are more often haunted than homes are. Uh, anything with a sentimental value can be like kind of like a focus or of like sorts a, for like a, a spirit. Like a, yeah. Also, I'm sure you know about like the legends or folklore or whatever you'd call it surrounding mirrors. Yeah, I mean, there's there's tons. Yeah, like people for ages have been like saying that they like, you know, they would cover up the mirrors mm-hmm. uh, when someone died in their house so the spirits wouldn't get trapped in there and like way back, I think it comes from way back when um, funerals were done in people's homes because there weren't funeral parlors yet, really. Mm -hmm. So they would have the funeral in people's homes and they would just cover up these mirrors so the souls of the dead would not get trapped in those mirrors. So I don't know what happened. What do you think actually happened? Wow. That's a... Loaded question, I know. So I personally, again... We'll say, I have never experienced anything paranormal or preternatural. I do get a lot of deja vu. Yeah. But that's about as far as it goes. Okay. And I feel like I have a lot of questions about Amityville because it just seems too perfect. Yes. It just, it kind of hits all of those like little tasty things that kind of trigger your creep 
your creep out vibe, you know? It seems like too much happened for mm-hmm. it to be one place. Yeah, exactly. Nowhere else that I've come across has had nearly this much shit happen. And then here's over the, such a short period of time, too. Here's the other thing, too. So it's this house where we don't know who lived there before the DeFeos. We know this terrible, awful crime happens with like a again a family annihilator. Yeah. And then afterwards, the next family that moves in reports all of these terrible, scary, supernatural events mm-hmm. in the span of 28 days. Yep. And then afterwards, nobody else who owns and lives in the house has those experiences. It just kind of rings a little off to me because I always think about, you know, as Americans, we're used to, like, when we think about something that's really old, it's like 200 years old. Exactly. Unlike other parts of the world where it's like, this was built in, like... A thousand years ago. Yeah. And we still go... The year 280. Exactly. (laughs) It's like, I think about, like, cathedrals in Europe. And it's like, people have been praying here for, like, literally a thousand years. And yet, people don't talk about hauntings. Mm Mm-hmm. It's, I feel like, I think it would be interesting for us to do an international episode, honestly, to I, see what we could find out that, there and, and kind of go back and will. compare it, right? Because there's a lot of really good stuff. I, I would love to do that because I think that's something that We'll do that after we get done at the U.S., of course. <gasps> it took me so long, unless unless our listeners will demand it, perhaps. Unless they demand it. Or maybe it's something we could do for, for Patreon. We could do that, too, yeah. An international road trip. That would work. Yeah. Get your passports ready. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're going to Europe. But overall, I just, I kind of feel like Amityville's a bit of bunk. I think um, a little bit too, but I don't think that it was necessarily completely fabricated. I feel that certain things did happen and other things were probably complete bullshit. I feel That's how I feel too. Yeah. I feel like there definitely could have been a haunting there, but I feel like it was like, there are certain things that you're like, oh yeah, that's fucking scary. And I'm sure that probably could have happened. Mm-hmm. Like the things like, like door slamming the family yeah. dog like that's a weird ass thing that could happen yeah but stuff like danny's hands getting like slammed Sla- and then he's fine yeah. i feel like that's kind of like that's a, a real weird, weird a weird memory from I mean, a little kid never say never because anything could happen anything's possible but i i do feel though that the very Lutzes, improbable I, I don't think the lutz were like terrible people I, no. I think i think at some point they were probably pressured into saying certain things i think so too and i think the media may have twisted oh for some of sure. it too because that sure. always happens um, I feel that for a few reasons, we could say that this happened, um, and the reason that it didn't happen for others is this. Um, if they were, in fact, practicing any sort of magic, and this negative event happened in the house before them, they could have easily stirred that up, and then once the people stirring it up had left, everything settled back down. Also, like I said before, the furniture mm-hmm. and the other stuff, any sort of objects attached to those people could have done that too. And the third reason is that George and Danny had a horrible relationship. Mm-hmm. They did not like each other at all. There was constant anger between them. He was in, like, the more, like, adolescent years, or starting to be. Mm-hmm. Um, Plus, it's like, it's this new dude. Yeah. It's not his dad. He is, like, very clearly trying to be their dad. Like, yes. he adopted them. And I think that makes a lot of sense. But he's also kind of not a very nice man to them, too. Well, I, 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 I feel like he would be a pretty strict disciplinarian, too. Uh, it's yeah, like the it's dude military. is a Marine. Yeah. yeah. But I feel that, like, it could have been some poltergeist activity. It could have been. Because a lot of stuff like that, when it's, you know, someone around that age, mm-hmm. angry, very angry. That's what does the poltergeisty thing. Also do the scratching parts. That is a very, very scientific term, by the way, guys. Poltergeisty thing. Poltergeisty thing. 
I also the scratching parts where they talked about like how like the family members would have like yeah. scratches. Mm-hmm. Stuff. I I have read about that a lot in hauntings, and those are usually the typical ones. And it's like. I don't know what it is, but it's something about like there's this house somewhere in the Midwest, and yep, the person the who owned it like died there, and he's a grumpy old man. Now he haunts it, and he scratches people, and it's like that's a very, I think, typical American haunting. Yeah, and I think that's something that it just it, it resonates. There's something about our culture that makes it happen. Yeah, and I think that's something that like I absolutely believe that probably happened to the Lutzes, but like. The four or five hundred flies, maybe not so much. I don't know. I mean, that seems a bit but too... But the levitating beds... Mm. Levitating beds, I don't know. I don't know that they'd be banging like being together held, like that. Yeah, being held in your bed. Yeah. Like, that I, That sounds fine. That sounds like a night terror to me. The freaking... My wife and I are talking and she starts levitating against an old hag face. Yeah. Uh, One, nope. Two, <laughs> really? It's it does seem a little far fetched. Like I said, I think that some things, some of the more minor things, or even some of the more major things, may have happened. It just gets drowned out by all, everything else. That I think it's talk just about. too crazy. Yeah. Well, that's my story. Oh, Amityville! You've taken it out of me. I know. Whew, that Hashtag was a long poot. one. <laughs> Hashtag poot. nope. As far as that house goes. Nope. I'm done. I'm pooped. All right. All right. Well, that's our episode for this week. I hope you enjoyed part two of New York. I know I did. Because we're in New York. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you guys want to share your own stories, give us feedback on the show. If you you think the idea of an international roadside horror show sounds amazing, let us know by writing us at roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com. Also send us pictures of your pets at that same email address and send us your personal stories as well, please. Yeah, we'd love to read them. Love to hear what you think. Um, As always, you can check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Roadside Horror Show. And Twitter at Roadside Horror what else? What else? We'd like to thank Yox Rocks Designs. That's the name, right? Yeah. Okay, good. But Yox Rocks Designs and E. Massey for doing our theme song and our outro as well. Mm-hmm. I think that's pretty much it. Yeah, I guess we're we're Audi 5000. Oh, yes. Also, wait. Oh, we're not. No, because also if you like us, please help us get more visibility by um, s- subscribing, of course, and then also rating us especially on iTunes. Um, Just give us a five-star review, please, please. (laughs) Yeah, and just word of mouth. Share with your friends. Yes. Tell everybody. Make posters. Put them around town. If you guys want to do a zine, I'm totally down for that. (laughs) If you want to do a zine, I'm down for that. I have a photocopier. It'd be amazing. (laughs) So, yes, please help us, people, because we love you, and we want more people to love us. Because no one loves me, damn it. (laughs) You really do need a dog. I do. I want someone to love me like Zach Baggins loves Zach Baggins. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, gang, we will see you all next week. Sleep well. Don't let the ghosts haunt, I guess. Don't let the ghosts rattle your bed. Yeah, that too. Yeah.